Our first reading comes from the book of Ezekiel, and in the blue Bible, that's on page uh, 820. On the brown Bible, that's page 771, Ezekiel chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 4 to 9, then from 25 to the end of the chapter. Ezekiel chapter 1, and picking up the reading from verse 4. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. And across to verse 25. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord. If you could turn with me again to the book of Mark. We started our series last week in in the wonderful book of Mark. We read the first and went through the first eight verses. And now we're going to be looking at uh, the next from 9 to 13. So that's Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. And starting at verse 9, let's hear from God's word. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Friends, as we take a good look at God's word now, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, so often in this world it's hard to have you as our vision, uh, to see you often amongst, amongst the struggle and the darkness, Lord, and our, our own sin as well. And so, Father, I pray, pray that you would uh, clear our eyes now so that we might see you more clearly and know you more dearly so we might follow you more, more closely, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. So friends, last week we kicked off our series in Mark and we saw the way Mark kicked things off, didn't we? 
big headline, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, followed by a big build-up to his arrival on the scene. How did Mark go about documenting this big build-up? Well, first cab off the rank, he takes us back in time and quotes two key prophecies, doesn't he, from the Old Testament. One from the great prophet Isaiah and the other one from the last prophet Malachi. And what was the thing that linked these two big prophecies together? Well, it was the message, wasn't it? The promise that the creator himself was coming down from heaven and into his creation. That day... That big, big day was on its way, they said. And his people would be in no doubt that this day was imminent, was just around the corner because a messenger, an Elijah figure, would appear in the wilderness calling out to them. And so John came, writes Mark. He lived like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He ate like Elijah. But most importantly, out in the desert, John preached with the very same prophetic power as Elijah. And so the whole Judean countryside, writes Mark, and all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him. And when they got there, this was the guts of his message. Verse 7. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. So friends, as we can see, Mark masterfully builds the story up, doesn't he? Verse by verse by verse. And if you're a first century Jew taking all this in for the first time, Well, having read all this, Mark now has you totally primed, ready for the biggest moment in your history, in Israel's history. And so with the stage perfectly set, look up, yells John to the crowd. The clouds part and a being emanating with brilliant light, blinding heavenly splendour appears. His arrival accompanied by peals of thunder and flashes of light. Some stood in awe, others ran as the great divine creator began to separate those who prepared from those who had not. Friends, after Mark's huge build-up, surely it is something like this, something like what Ezekiel saw that happens next. Because as Barry read before, that's what happens when the Creator comes down from heaven, breaks through from up there to down here. That's what we should see when the pure, powerful, holy Lord of all comes down. But although that's what Mark primes us to see and hear, instead we get this. Verse 9, have another look at it. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, if you're that first century Jew we mentioned before, well, let's just say you're now scratching your head a little, actually a whole lot. Uh, What did I just miss? What's just happened? 
Why is Mark suddenly focusing my attention on this random bloke from Nazareth? Now our response would be, hey, can't you read? Mark is introducing us to Jesus. First century Jews' response, okay, so what's your point? There are thousands upon thousands of men who go by that name. Jesus, Yeshua, was as common as Joshua is for you guys today. Okay, but Mark mentions Jesus back in verse 1. Sure, but that Jesus clearly has a divine postcode, right? While this one hails from Nazareth over there in Galilee. Now that's a bit like saying at that moment Jesus from Latrobe came. At that time Jesus from Bernie appeared on the scene. Now friends, unless you have an Israelite mindset, a Jewish expectation of what Mark had geared you up to see next, well, you can easily miss the surprise of what he then hits you with in verse 9. The music builds to a crescendo. The curtain opens. And who appears but some ordinary bloke who hails from that very, very ordinary town. So why is he now given the spotlight? Because you can be sure on that day when he showed up, nobody would have looked at him twice. Just another face in the crowd who joined that queue and then started slowly shuffling forward down to the river, down to John. What's happening, Mark? Why are we now focusing on this very earthy, this very ordinary man who came not down from heaven but walked up from Bernie, up from Nazareth? He simply cannot be the same Jesus as the Jesus of verse 1. Because look at what Mark writes next. He doesn't start baptising with the Holy Spirit as John promised, but gets dunked by him like everybody else. Okay, but keep reading, says Mark. Because when this bloke from Nazareth submits to John's baptism... Well, verse 10, have another look what happens. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So friends, here's the scene, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the bloke, whose postcode has been Galilee for the past 30 years. When this man does what all those other men have been doing, submits to John's baptism, suddenly that's when things go all Ezekiel chapter 1. Heavens rip open, the Father speaks, and the link is made between this Jesus and the Jesus of verse 1. But all of this raises a question, doesn't it? Why does it happen this way? I mean, Jesus was God's son an hour earlier when he joined that queue, wasn't he? So why not announce him then when he, comes, when he shows up? Why make him line up like everybody else 
if he is not like everybody else? Why conceal him and then reveal him at the moment of John's baptism? Indeed, why be baptised at all? That's a good question, isn't it? And friends, the answer is so awesome, whole books have been written on it. Sermon series done on just this moment. But as we're spending a little less time than that, let's get to the heart of why it happens this way. Now first up, let's be clear on what John's baptism was for. Why people submitted to it. This moment was all about them recommitting their lives back to God. This was a moment about seeking for that broken vertical relationship to be restored again. As people went into that water, hard, closed hearts were given back to God. Psalm 139, almost certainly on their lips, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know me. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so Jesus of Nazareth walks into the water. John plunges him into it. And Jesus the man, Jesus with that Galilean postcode, opens his heart to the Father, Psalm 139 style. Test me. Know me, see me. And so Jesus' life is examined. And what does the Father come back with? Well, what he comes back with is no need for forgiveness, no need for mercy, no need to start over with him because that relationship has never been broken. Never a rebellious moment. Jesus' heart is examined and found spotless. Who exactly is this one who has never strayed from God, who has no need to repent after 30 years on earth? Well, let's hear it from the one he had submitted his heart to. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Friends, John's baptism is about submitting your heart and life to the divine examination that you may be forgiven. And because the Son has perfectly kept faith with the Father all along, he passes that examination. No need for forgiveness. And he is now ready to fulfill the role for which the Father sent him. What is that role? Back to verse 10, first half, have a look. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So what's that about? What's happening here? Well, to put it in layman's terms, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the carpenter, is receiving a pretty significant promotion from carpenter to Christ. Wasn't he the Christ before this day? No, he wasn't. 
Christ means anointed one, Holy Spirit anointed to lead and serve God's people. And this is the moment where this anointing takes place. Jesus enters the river as Jesus the Nazarene, but he exits the river, Jesus the King. But friends, before we now follow him as king, there's one more thing about Jesus' baptism, one more reason why the Father chooses this moment to reveal him. And this reason is about all those watching on and us as we read on. The Scottish preacher Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. Have a listen. By entering the same river in whom all those fallen people had just symbolically washed away their sins, by entering and then allowing that same sin-laden water to be poured over himself, Jesus, on his first day of his ministry, points us to his last. Now, friends, see what Mr. Ferguson is pointing out here. Now, remember when you were a kid, and you wound up having to be the last one in the bath, got out feeling more gross than when you got in, right? Well, here Jesus walks into John's filthy bath, dirty visually, but more important, dirty spiritually, because all the sins John has symbolically washed away. John says no, but Jesus says go. And so he is bathed in the same water as everybody else from head to toe. In this, Jesus' first day as king points us to the crown that he will wear as Christ, made of thorns, worn on a cross. As this king takes the symbol of his first day and makes it a reality as he bears those sins for many, bears them on the cross and deals with them all on the cross. Father, forgive. It is finished. Today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, Jesus' baptism at the Jordan pictures for us his baptism at Calvary. truly and fully taking on people's sin that they may be washed away. But friends, there's a lot to happen, a lot to be done between Jesus' first day and Jesus' last day. So how will day one look for King Jesus? Because day one is pretty important, isn't it? When a newly appointed king, a newly appointed president, a prime minister, what they do on day one says a whole lot about their agenda, doesn't it? So what is Jesus' first day in his office going to look like? What's number one in his entry having been declared king? Where will the Holy Spirit guide him now? Off to Jerusalem to preach? Off to the poor to heal? off to those Pharisees to call them out? Where will the Holy Spirit guide him? Verse 12, have another look. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 
40 days. So let's get this straight. Jesus' number one first priority as Israel's divinely appointed leader is to basically walk off and out into the middle of nowhere. First port of call for Israel's king is not to make himself known, but to shoot through, make himself scarce, disappear for well over a month. And so we ask, or we should ask, why? And looking again at verse 12, Mark doesn't give us a whole lot to go on, does he? Just a number, 40 as well as letting us know that Jesus is not completely alone out there, is he? No, there's another being who goes out to meet him. His name, Satan. Now, friends, although that's not a whole lot of information, it's enough to tell us that Jesus has not gone into hiding, not running from his responsibilities as king, but the opposite. By going into the desert, Jesus is actually tackling his number one responsibility as Christ head on. How so? Let's first think about that number that Mark gives us, 40. Friends, where does that number take us if not straight to the moment when God's Spirit also ordered Israel out into the desert. And then having called them back after their time, God makes it crystal clear while their time out in that desert was so necessary. Deuteronomy chapter 8, have a listen. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert those 40 years to humble you and to test you whether you would keep his commands or not. He humbled you to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Remember this critical desert lesson, Israel. Lock it in that you would not have lasted five minutes out there if not for me. Remember the desert, remember the place that provides nothing at all for you, for life. And yet you survived. Why? Because I am the source of your life. So trust me, follow me and obey me and you will have life as well as bring life to the lost. That's the desert lesson. Did Israel remember it? No, they did not. And so the hapless, hopeless state that Jesus found them in when he came on the scene. The question, of course, is, has Jesus taken heed of Israel's biggest and most important lesson? Will he trust? Will he obey when all earthly props are taken away? Well, we're about to find out as the best one at finding this out, is now given free reign to put Jesus' toes to the fire. 
And friends, make no mistake, the devil is highly motivated here. He is extra motivated. Because if there is one word, one memory verse that Satan has never forgotten, it's Genesis 3.15, which goes like this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A day is coming, devil, an offspring of the woman coming. And Jesus has just been announced as this one, the sinless son. And so Satan goes to him, just as he went to sinless Adam. Except Adam had everything going for him, didn't he? Not a desert, but a garden. Blessed, happy, joyful, safe. But with those four simple words, did God really say sinless Adam was sinless no more, was he? And so Satan comes to the second Adam. Except this time everything is in Satan's favour now. The garden's gone. This is his domain. Fallen, desolate, dangerous. The animal's wild, writes Mark. The ruler of the kingdom of the air is about to rule and reign over this one. This should be a cinch. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus' response, straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, word for word. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Bad start. And it just gets worse for Satan for them. How do we know this from this very brief account from Mark? Because he takes us to the scene next after that, the final scene, Satan gone and the angels attending to Jesus. Now what a different response that is to the first Adam. Remember what the angels do when they go to him? They don't attend to him, they arrest him. They toss him out of the garden with Eve. And then they guard the entrance, don't they? So they might never return. Not here, writes Mark. The angels come and they comfort, encourage and strengthen Jesus. And friends, in this response, what we have, what we see is the fall in reverse. In the garden, the first Adam rejects God for Satan. But now in the desert, the second Adam rejects Satan for God. In the garden, the first Adam rejects God for Satan. In the desert, the second Adam rejects Satan for God. What a moment as the angels now flock to him. What was the conversation between them as they attended him? 
I'm going to take an educated guess and say it was probably something like this. We've guarded that door to the paradise for a long, long time with those flaming swords, but they will soon be gone. For Satan has just met his match. And whether this was what they said, who can say for sure? But friends, what we can say for sure is Jesus returned from that desert with a message, a message about paradise and the way back in. Have a listen. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what can we say but we just thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he survived the desert test. Everything thrown at him with everything against him. And yet your son stayed faithful, rejected Satan. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that although that demonstrates his glory and his wonder and his perfection, Heavenly Father, we thank you too that he did all that with us in mind to open the way back into paradise, to get rid of those those flaming swords that bar us because of our sin. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus' sure and firm and certain promise to us about this, that he is the door, he is the way back to you, he is the way to paradise, he is the way to go from death to life. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for him and we pray by your spirit that you've given us to continue to follow him to the end. And we pray this in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen.